0: Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world, and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello. I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I for one know that they are a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian Mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Howdy, my good friends. Hope you're ready and raring to go today. Thank you so much for dropping by. Now, without you, there just wouldn't be any reason for me to be here, and believe me, I never forget that. There are a whole parcel of stories and different happenings from these old mountains that my great-grandpa, grandparents, and parents told me about from the time I was a little fella right up until, well, even today when I visit my dad. they Range from murders, ghosts, and traditions to Cherokee legends and Appalachian heroes. Seems like there's always one more story to tell. The endings of some of these stories leave, you know, some of us wondering just who hit John sometimes. Uh, we do a bit of ciphering sometimes to come up with our own explanation of exactly who did what. Uh, that is, I guess, if we've got enough information to get that far with it. Today's story is one that's going to. Do something like that to anybody who hears it. If you ever get to Raleigh County, West Virginia, and do a little messing around, you'll see what I mean when I tell you that folks around them parts don't get worked up easy. They are some of the most laid-back and easygoing folks on earth. Well, until you get into Beckley a little bit, it's a little different there, a little more bustle to the city, and you know the folks are a little more about their business, but don't mean they ain't good folks. It's just a little bit of a different feel to it than the county outside. Still to this day, though, if you bring up what happened to the Hood family, I guarantee you, you get a reaction out of the people that's been around there a while. So, come on in, take your shoes off, and set a spell while I tell you about the George Hood family of West Virginia. Back at the beginning of the Civil War, George Washington Hood Sr. enlisted in the 8th Virginia Infantry because he was fixing to be drafted if he didn't, and that would have been in the Confederate Army. It would later become the 7th West Virginia Cavalry, which was a Union Regiment. He served there until the end of the war. Now, The reason for the regiment change was that the state of Virginia was downright split over the Civil War, and it was never able to be put back together like it was before once the war was over. And we've talked about how Appalachian hillbillies hated the Confederacy, and if you go around a part of the country, you you might still yet find a pride, proud hillbilly or twelve hanging around there somewhere. Between me and you and the fence post, you're going to be completely floored by the beauty of that place. There's just no other place on earth like West Virginia, hands down. But George had been married to his first wife, who was named... Ivanona, who she had married back in 1852, and she died by 1857 of what was listed as a hemorrhage of the womb, which most of the time happened during a pregnancy or childbirth back in those days. Since I couldn't find any children from their marriage, it tends to make me think that uh, maybe there were complications of some kind in a pregnancy or a birth that led to the loss of Ivanona along with the child. Now. By October 31st, 1909, the day at the Hood residence started as a normal day for the whole family in their home, which sat about three and a half miles outside of Beckley in a place called Mount Tabor along the main road to Harper. That would be along about where Route 3 is today. They made their normal Sunday runs by attending church. The four younger members of the Hood family attended the evening service at the Mount Tabor Baptist Church. It was a pretty exciting day for the whole family because 12-year-old Emma was baptized into the church family that morning. Almeida, Emma, Winford, and Roy attended the evening service, but their father decided to stay home. Now, back then, it was probably a little bit hard on the bones of an 82-year-old feller to do a lot of traveling in them old buckboard wagons, even though up until at least 13 years early it had been quite virile, I guess, you might say. But back in 1909, the old buckboard or maybe a horse was the predominant means of travel around them parts. I'm here to tell you that if you're going to ride in one of them things, you better keep your mouth shut and your teeth clenched up tight. Because if you hit a bump, you're going to chip one of them, if you you don't. Uh, At least that's the way it was in my grandpas back when I used to ride around, didn't it? After the service... Almeida, Emma, and Roy went home while Winfred and his friend Walter Harper decided to go to a neighbor's house where they had took along two young lady friends. Now, back on then, Halloween wasn't really anything much to anybody around them parts. It was pretty much just another Sunday in the mountains. So they spent the evening doing whatever young men found themselves doing in that situation. You know, whatever they got into back then. No, now, don't be thinking that away. They most likely just did a little sparking and called it a night. And by the way, sparking is what we mountain folk call courting. So, they got their sparking all done, headed home and around 11 o'clock that night. And Winifred and his friend Walter rode up to the Hood home place and found the house being swallowed up by fire. And it was so bad that the kitchen was near nothing but a smoking mass of cinders. And the flames had walked upstairs to the second floor and was working on it like it was killing snakes. And the fire was well beyond any hope of getting under control. The only hope anybody had was to try to make it inside to save whoever was caught up in it. So both young fellas tried to get through the front door, but wasn't able to get into the house because it was just too blame hot. It was a good thing for them that they didn't because it wasn't but a few minutes until the whole roof caved in. There wasn't any screaming heard from inside the house, and there were two ways to look at that. Maybe nobody was home, which was a good thing, or, well, maybe they were, which meant the worst thing they could imagine. Both of them thought that since they didn't see anybody anywhere around, everybody had to be at home and were probably in bed asleep, which was just awful. There was just nothing at all could be done. Next morning, with what was left of the house still smoking in places, police and fire marshals started their investigation with a walkthrough, expecting the worst because some folks were still unaccounted for. Sure enough, they found four charred bodies in the burned-out house. The legs and arms of each of them had been burned completely off. From the position of George and Roy's bodies and fractures to the skulls, police immediately thought that All of them had been murdered by whoever did it and went and struck a match to the rest of it to try to cover it up. What really put the theory over the top was another thing. Almida and Emmer were found to be missing their heads. It just didn't make sense that the fire had got hot enough to completely destroy the girls' heads and not do the same thing to George and Roy. To the investigators, fire just didn't work like that. As Monday rolled in, a huge crowd of folks showed up on the site. One of the crowd was prosecuting attorney Dunn, who would be the man doing the prosecuting when they caught the no good dog that had done all this to the Hood family. Of course, the bodies were taken in for autopsy, but we have to remember that we're dealing with 1909 pathology and this wasn't Scotland Yard. It took a good bit of time and, you know, for the science to develop and spread across the pond and be perfected in the United States to the point that it is today still. They did what they were supposed to do, and they impaneled a coroner's jury, where doctors Hume, Snuffer, and Sampson were instructed to examine the bodies, and each confirmed that all of the bodies were in such bad shape that it was possible, impossible to determine whether death was the result of fire, or the Hood family had been rubbed out before it started. All the coroner's inquest convened in Beckley on Tuesday morning. All three of the Doctors were called in to drop their two cents into the hat concerning their examination of the bodies. Now, Dr. Snuffer said that the remains of Almeda, Emma, and Roy were found in the east wing of the house, and George was found lying partially on a bed spring in the west side of the house. The doctors also stated that the skulls of two of the victims showed conclusively that there had been violence and that the deaths hadn't been caused by the fire alone actually small pieces of bone, were found embedded in the brain and cavities of the head of Roy, which indicated that he had been whacked in the head. Later in the day, the jury returned with their verdict, which said we, the jury, find that the deaths of G.W. Hood Sr., Almeda Hood, Roy Hood, and Emma Hood were caused by burning or other type of violence. They're, there they had it. Homicide. Either way, they they were beat, shot, or burned to death one way or another maybe a combination of all three did some of men but regardless somebody did it to them one way or another uh, after that the bodies were returned to the surviving family and all four were buried in the mount Tabor cemetery beside george senior's wife or who had died in 1905 i couldn't find the cause of her death i expect it was yellow fever because there was an outbreak in the u.s in that year which was the last year yellow fever broke out as an epidemic in this country she had married george in 1867 and had been george's second wife now due to the fact that there was so little of their bodies remaining uh, george senior and roy or royal was his real name but they called him royal roy now, they were buried together in one coffin and emma and sarah together in the other sarah being almeida sarah almeida and their graves are marked by the tallest monument that still stands in the graveyard i'll post a picture of that on facebook group appalachian murder mystery and legend podcast for anybody who'd like to see it anyway county officers (coughs) didn't have a single idea why anybody would want to hurt let alone kill any of the hoods they were known to be fine upstanding members of the community and everybody and his brother thought the world of them as far as they could find it first and of course, not to be left out in the cold, the press had <clears throat> to report on everything with the newspaper stories saying that revenge was undoubtedly the motive for the terrible crime. Although some stuck to the theory that robbery was the motive, none of the writers cared to enough about anything to explain why they thought revenge was the motive or anything else was the motive. Maybe they thought along the lines of what we've seen here in the past episodes. You know, that little problem called the Civil War that lived on well past its official end. To some folks, it didn't matter what happened in the war. They wasn't done fighting, and as we saw in Bad Taught Hall and the Kentucky Cannibal Boone Hill, they were going to attack anybody that didn't agree with them. And yes, folks, that went through generations for near 90 or in some places even 100 years after the war ending. The reason that folks thought that it was More in line with the robbery was because that scuttlebutt was that old man George kept a right smart amount of cash in the house. They heard that he kept somewhere in the neighborhood of $1,700 in the house at any given time. Folks, that would be worth about $51,000 or maybe more in today's money. Needless to say, after the newspaper got done with the story, if folks around about the area wasn't up in arms about the possibility of a monster lumbering around amongst them, they sure as heck was once the newspapers got done. And that took some doing. Like we said, those folks don't get worked up about much. The first lucky man to win the the under-the-skype-microscope award from the investigators was Mike Farrell. Mike had been interested in Almeida for a spell, and the Sunday of the fire, he had gone over to the Hood Place to call on her. As it turned out, He'd had a few belts of his special home brew to steady his nerves first, and once he got there he might have been just a little bit too limber because old man George thought he was downright offensive and told Mike that he could just shut his corn fritter hole and get to stepping. Mike left, but he said he'd be back later that night uh, because he fully intended to escort Almeida to church. When he didn't show up, uh, they just left without him. Sounds to me like he went home and maybe got carried away on his home brew. By the next Saturday, the investigators thought that they had it all figured out and were ready to make an arrest. They run down Mike where he worked on a five-man bridge carpenter crew for the Virginian Railroad. I reckon they must have got caught up in the excitement of what they were doing because they arrested Mike and then grabbed the whole entire crew and dug took them with them and they They'd actually been living in a worn-out boxcar on a sidetrack near Herberton. And you won't find Herberton on a map anymore. It's called Willis Branch now, and that's over near Pax. Now, the arrested folks were Mike Farrell, Nelson Thompson, Riley Durham, Harlow Lively, and Ed Scruggs. All of them were dragged down to Bluefield, where they were given a good old-fashioned police sweating by the Baldwin Feltz detective named James O'Connor. Mr. Durham and Mr. Scruggs were yanked up mid-sentence and hauled over to Beckley Jail where they could get a good look at the lynch mob peering at them through the barred-covered windows and, you know, like a Doberman be looking at a T-bone or something. But no matter how much rubber hose or soap in socks or bright lights or even knuckle gloves the police used, and believe me, by golly, they used them back then, the boys claimed they didn't know nothing about nothing. Then, as it turned out, all of their alibis checked out, too, so that ended up being a brick wall number one for the investigation. The Raleigh County Court then offered a reward of $1,000 to anybody that could give information leading to an arrest of the Hood family's murder, and it, that's over 33000 in today's money. I reckon that was about the time they figured that they needed to bring in a specialist. Deputy Marshal, uh, Dan Cunningham was brought in to add his specialized talent to the case. Folks, Deputy U.S. Marshals don't play. They got a long history of dragging the unsub in and cuffs or stretched out in the pine box. Don't matter to them. Not too long after he showed up, he managed to dig up a clue that seemed like well, there was something to it. He found out that a couple of days after the murder... A fella named Nick King sent a suitcase full of clothes from Harper to his wife in Beckley. He sent the clothes by a hack driver named Hugh Wright. Folks, a hack driver was like a taxicab. They didn't just transport folks from point A to point B. They'd transfer about anything you gave them, of course, at the same price. But Mr. King told Hugh to tell his wife that she didn't need to get all worked up about the bloody clothing crammed in the case. He told Hugh to tell her that the blood come off the other fellow. Sounds to me like he messed with the bull and got a little bit of the horn there, don't he? Stick around, folks. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. That, folks, was good enough information for Marshall Cunningham to jog on over the next day and place Mr. Keene under arrest. He was cuffed stuffed and shipped over to Charleston and Mr. King ended up proving that he wasn't even in the, the area of Beckley at the time of the murder and police had let him go too and that was brick wall number two. Then there was a woman from Huntington known only as Mrs. Blake. Mrs. Blake was a witcher who was famous for being able to talk to folks after they took their dirt nap since they were about fad plum up with the police getting nowhere fast and nobody was getting arrested so that stuck a close friend of the hood family decided what can it hurt to go on over and do a little conversating with miss blake now this visitor who apparently wanted to remain anonymous said that he'd had a chance to interview the shade of george hood folks that's an old term for spirit that I I hadn't actually heard it in a long time. I was kind of surprised that they used it here, but that's sure enough what he said. According to the mystery witness, the Shade of Mr. Hood told him that he and his three children were murdered before their bodies were burned. The two girls were strangled and their heads were chopped off, put in a sack, and then left with the perpetrators. They carried them to what the Shade said was the deepest ravine in the Hood property and buried them in the sand. I know, I hear you, asking where in the world would sand be in the mountains. Well, folks, those of you don't live in the mountains may not believe it, but uh, there's a right smart bit of sand to be found all over the Appalachian Mountains, whether that makes any sense to anybody or not. George's Shade went on to say that Roy had been shot to death and that he, was kill- he himself, the-, the Shade, was killed by getting bashed in the head with the butt of a pistol then the whole house was ransacked top to bottom by the men as they carried the sack full of heads from room to room. The shade of George said that the crime was planned by one man but carried out by three others in masks. Of course, once that made the newspapers, investigators pretty much said that they didn't believe much of anything that came out of Miss Blake's mouth about the case. That was just before they headed out to search a ravine, or matter of fact, every ravine on the Hood property where they found another brick wall because there just wasn't no hiding the hair of nothing to be found anywhere. That was about the time that everybody went completely silent on the case for a spell. The police wouldn't say anything else, and there wasn't a single word published in the press. It would go on like that for eight more months without another drop of anything coming out. Then on July 21st, 1910, the press went with a story saying that the hood mystery was nearing a solution. They were claiming that detectives on the case have some strong clues which will lead to the identity of at least part of the gaggle of infidels that were positively known to have implicated or been put into the crime or done the crime. It goes on to say, though, that some kind of means that which they ain't able to reveal the investigators working on the case found out to an absolute certainty that the number of people that took part in the crime was five and investigators were getting real close to pouncing on the five of them and dragging them in of course that would be coming just as soon as they could dig up enough evidence to on the ones they think did it folks that type of thing if it was really what was going on usually leads down our the wrong rabbit hole and ends up with the wrong rabbit that's if even a rabbit in to get to and hide hidey hole the rabbit hole and sometimes <clears throat> newspapers but uh, well you know write a story like that just to sell papers and use a little bit of their artistic license to to on the story you know but <clears throat> you know who am I I'm just not a journalist I might act like one poorly I might add but That's uh, for the purpose of this podcast only. (laughs) Then a few days after that, it was reported in another paper, I guess since the last one sold so well, that a Deputy U.S. Marshal went to the West Virginia Penitentiary in Moundsville and interviewed a black man named Luther Sherman, who lived near the Hood's house when the murders went down. According to the report, Mr. Sherman was offered immunity for any involvement he had in the killings if he would just confess and implicate himself and other black folks police thought were involved who also happened to live nearby. Then it came to the attention of investigators working the Hood case that just 80 miles north and a few days after the Hood murders, somebody committed armed robbery in Gassaway, West Virginia. Folks, that's right close to a place called Flatwoods where folks saw some kind of a weird looking monster that we'll get to in another episode. But investigators thought that this robbery just might be linked to the Hood murders back in Beckley. The three black men reportedly robbed Albert Lockhold and his family at about one in the morning, three days after the Hoods were killed. Now, Mr. uh, Lockhold said that he uh, had been walking among the sweet peas in a deep sleep when he was woke up. While he was laying there wondering just what woke him from his, that kind of sleep, the first thing he saw was the to end of a gun in the hands of a man who demanded his money. Now he went on to get the money while two other men allegedly helped tie Mr. Lockhold up, and at least one of them assaulted Mrs. Lockhold at gunpoint. All three men must have decided they wanted to stick around for breakfast because they stayed in the house until the sun came up. That's when Mr. Lockhold somehow convinced him to let him go to work at the coal and coke railroad because, after all, if he didn't show up, somebody was going to come looking for him. After he left, Mrs. Lockhold was assaulted all over again. Three men then forced her to cook breakfast for him and before leaving, and as they put it, to wreck a train that morning. And that meant they were going to head over with a belly full of ham and eggs, I reckon, to rob a train. That was going to be their next crime. Of course, Mr. Locko didn't go to work. He rode hell-bent for leather to get help and come back home with a armed posse to take care of business. Now, the posse chased after the men and found one of them a few miles away going into Gerwig's store. He was identified as Scott Lewis. Now, Mr. Lewis saw the posse coming, ran straight through the store, and was trying to jump out the back window. He was then promptly shot to death by the entire posse as he tried to pull his own gun out. I'm assuming that would be the same gun that Mr. Lockhold got a real good look at earlier in the morning. Now, Mr. Lewis's body was found by police riddled with more bullets than they could count from the posse who had chased him into the store because Mr. Lockhold told him that Mr. Lewis was one of the men who robbed him and assaulted his wife. Now, a pistol and train ticket to Orlando were found... On the body, the two other men were find, found hiding between some freight cars. They were arrested by Gassaway police and dragged off to jail. An inquest was held into the dead man, and it was ruled that his death was caused by gunshot wounds at the hands of a, unknown persons. A few days later, Governor Glasscock went to Gassaway to quell the rowdy crowd who were mad as hell and wanted to lynch the two surviving men for the crimes that they were accused of before the trial would even happen. Governor asked the citizens to allow justice to take its course. Then, just as fast as it made the newspapers, the story packed its bags and left. There's not another word on who the men were and what became of them. While Steve was in the area, though, Governor did announce the re- another reward of five hundred dollars to anybody on the information that would lead to the arrest of those involved in the Hood family murders. That would be near seventeen thousand in today's money. But, as it turned out, not a soul came out with a word. Today, all there's left is newspaper stories and some evidence that are both over a hundred years old. People do awful things to one another every day, so it ain't hard to think that the murders of the Hood family were carried out to get hold of some, some of old man George's money that he kept on hand. But one thing sticks out in my craw about the case, being that it was the science of fire investigation has changed different ways over the years and just recently changed again and they now know that it was what's deemed to be an arson in the past could likely be accidental. What if the fire was truly accidental and started in the kitchen as many fires did at that time? Could it have maybe been what was responsible for the death of the Hood family? I do think it's a possibility. After all, the roof did collapse and could have done a good bit of damage to the bodies i'm just spitballing here folks so i'm not an expert or maybe when the marshal went to the penitentiary to interview mr sherman he did confess the crime agreed to testify for immunity and gave him the names of the others involved unfortunately being that everybody who was involved has now passed on we'll you know probably never know what happened here the survivors of the Hood family at the time of the killings were George Jr. and Winfield Hood. And, uh, George left Raleigh County, you know, in 1931 with his wife Lona. They moved to Monroe County near Alderson until his death on November 7, 1956. Both he and his wife were buried and brought back and buried in the Mount Tabor Cemetery with his family. Winfield left Raleigh, too, and joined his brother in Monroe County with his wife, Elsie. He died on August 19th, 1981, and it's believed that Winfield and Elsie are buried in the Alderson area. Folks, I hope you got something out of our story today. It's one more that needed telling. If you like the podcast, drop us a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify or anybody else that you can drop one on. Please don't forget to follow us on whatever your podcatcher you're listening on and that way you get notified of new episodes when they come out. Join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend Podcast where we talk about everything Appalachian or about anything else you won't bring up. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, or Legend, and I will see you then.